This morning is our last sermon in our Advent series. We spent the last four weeks looking at the second coming of Christ. Because the second coming is about hope, and it reminds you that someone's coming for you. Jesus is coming for you. And at Rockwall Prez, we want to be a church of profound hope. Yet, at the same time, hope feels hard to come by these days. Today is also the last sermon of the year. A very long year in many ways. And right now, it does not feel as though hope abounds. If you remember back to last year at this time, we were all so ready for 2020 to be over, that no one really entertained the possibility that 2021 might not be that much different. It was cathartic to think that, you know, things could only get better, right? It's only up from here. And yet here we are at the end of 2021. And I think the reality is people feel even less hope now than they did last year. Instead, there's a sense in which a deep resignation has settled into how people think about the future. Maybe to highlight that, you might think about it this way, that at the end of last year, there was the hope that things would get better. But now it seems as though the hope is that things don't get worse. And it's hard to be a people of hope when hope feels hard to come by. Two weeks ago, Mark and I hosted the Rockwall Ministers Alliance here uh, at RPC. The Rockwall Ministers Alliance is a monthly gathering of local pastors that get together to connect and to pray for our community and for one another and for each other's churches. And Mark did the devotional since we hosted, and he talked about the spiritual condition of pastors in the United States. And he referenced a recent Barna study that just came out. And in that study, they asked pastors if they had seriously considered quitting the ministry in the last year. Now, at the end of 2020, the results were bad, as you might expect. But by the end of this year, they were even worse. They found that nearly half of pastors under the age of 45 were seriously considering quitting the ministry. Half. Half of pastors under the age of 45 considering leaving the ministry. And across all ages, 40% of pastors were seriously considering leaving the ministry altogether. Thank you for that encouraging word, Pastor Mark. He then invited all of us to curl up in the fetal position. You know, but what grabbed my attention most of all was how all of the pastors present that morning all had the same response. They all said, that actually sounds low to me. It's not a very hopeful picture of the church, is it? But it's not just in the church, it's also outside the church. I came across an article a couple of weeks ago as well. And the article was titled, I'm starting to give up on post-pandemic life. 
And it wasn't an article that was trying to be political or, or take a stance on any issue. It was one where they were trying to step back and take an honest look at what their life had become over these last two years and all that they'd missed out on. All of the little moments of hope that things might be changing for the better, that life was finally getting back to normal only to be disappointed with new setbacks and new circumstances that just slowly chipped away at their willingness to even have any hope at all. And the writer was a professor that said his life was now marked by all of these little moments of sadness. Little moments like when he'd see one of his students lower their mask to take a drink and he'd see their face. And he realized that he didn't even know what the student looked like. He wondered what else he might have missed. What else had been lost along the way. Then he talked about there's the great resignation that's changing the employment landscape of our country. The ongoing promises of pandemic control and prevention from our government that just never seem to deliver. An economy that's overstressed by inflation and shortages. A healthcare industry pushed beyond its breaking points and dramatically understaffed. And he said, saddest of all, he said early on in the pandemic, his five-year-old daughter would talk about things that she wanted to do together as a family, quote, after coronavirus. But he said now she stopped. She doesn't do that anymore. Because she'd already outgrown the things that she wanted to do. And she never had a chance to do them. And he ended the article with this. Life has become a gloomy slog, now begotten by new generations. What if it never ends? Everyone knows the past is gone, but now the future feels lost too. I hope it's not, but I just can't shake the feeling. As you head into the new year, do you really feel all that much different? When you think about the future that lies ahead, what do you think about? How do you feel? Perhaps you feel that same sense of dread and despair in your own way. Or maybe you don't think about it in the same terms as the author, but you still come to the same conclusion. Where's the hope? Where's the hope to be found? And I think it's safe to say that we all struggle with pessimism and resignation as we look around at our world. And yet the Bible tells us that we have hope. And it calls us to be a people of hope. And you hear that, and it just, to you, sounds like wishful thinking. We might as well be talking about unicorns. Maybe it feels impossible, and you think, how can I have hope in my life when I look around and see everything that's going on in this world and all of the circumstances in my life? Well, here's the good news. The hope that the Bible is talking about has nothing to do with any of those things. Nothing. 
Nothing whatsoever. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about it in a completely different way because it's talking about a completely different kind of hope. It's the type of hope that even when the world is falling apart around us, it's a hope that remains. It's the hope of Habakkuk, who said, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. It's the hope of Lamentations, who wrote by the rivers of Babylon, when they lost everything that they had and were being marched into exile, they said, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Isn't that a completely different response to the world? Isn't that a completely different kind of hope? Why? Because it's a hope that's not attached to circumstances. It's a hope that has nothing to do with circumstances. It's a hope that's not dependent on what's going on in your life or in the world around you. Because it is a hope that is fundamentally uncircumstantial. It's a hope that's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It wants to break above the surface. It wants to ride above the waves of circumstance and situation. That is the hope that is ours. So how do we get it? How do you feel that? Well, if we want to experience that kind of hope, then we at least have to start by recognizing how we do attach our hope to our circumstances. You know, we look around at the world, we look around at our lives, and the hope we feel is determined by what we see. We attach our hope to our circumstances and think that life will be better once this situation works out. Life will be better once these circumstances change. Life will be better whenever everything looks a certain way and feels a particular way. And oftentimes we bring that into our relationship with Jesus. And that becomes our focus. So we come to Jesus with all of the circumstances that we want him to change or maintain or fix. But then if those things don't go how we want, what happens? Is Jesus, where are you? Jesus, do you even care? Why pray? Doesn't do anything. And then what happens? We become cynical, not hopeful. We become cold towards the reality of our lives and the circumstances we face. And we feel that deep sense of resignation. Because when we attach our hopes to our circumstances, then it simply means that you will constantly be robbed. 
And even though we may not write an article like the one I just read, we still write that same headline in our hearts. I'm starting to lose hope for life. And maybe this morning that's where you're at. And if you were honest with yourself, you'd say, you know, I don't feel hope right now. In fact, it's been a long time since I've actually felt real hope. Let me ask the question then, what circumstances have you attached your hope to? And your experience of hope is dependent on this question. Are you willing to let those things go? Because Jesus said in this gospel that if you want to find your life, you have to first give it up. To find it, you got to lose it. And the hope of the gospel operates in the exact same way. If you want to find your hope, you first have to lose it. You have to let go and give up all those areas and circumstances upon which you've placed your hope. Are you willing to let those things go? And are you willing to look where Paul wants you to look? Because the most common desire, I think, for Paul when he talks to all of his churches, and you can see it in all of his letters, is that they would feel hope. It's everywhere. Constantly wanting them to know the hope that is theirs because they lived in the same hopeless world we do. And Paul writes to us the same things he wrote to them. That we have to learn to detach our hope from our circumstances in the same way that they had to learn to detach their hope from their circumstances. And Paul reminds us once again of where our uncircumstantial hope is found in verse 13. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's giving us the conclusion the summation, that our hope is in the person of Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Not the right set of circumstances, not the right situation, not the right set of outcomes. No, it's the one who conquered sin and death and says to you, Christian, fear not, I have overcome the world. I am your hope. And the thing is, we would all confess that. And it's one thing to say it, because we know that's the right answer. But it's another thing to feel it. It's another thing to know it deep in your soul, to know that hope that rides above whatever circumstance and situation you face. So how does that happen? How can you know and feel the hope of Christ in this new year? Well, Paul says in verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He's saying this is the work of salvation that has come to you and is at work in your life. So what should that tell us about what Jesus is doing 
in your life? Well, it should at least tell us this. Jesus isn't about trying to change your circumstances. He's about trying to change you. Jesus isn't about trying to change your circumstances. He wants to change you in your circumstances. Because the grace of God has appeared to you. The grace of God has appeared to you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You were the shepherd in the field. You were the wise man far off that Jesus has drawn unto himself and invited to come and see what God has done in Jesus. Grace of God has appeared to you, and that grace is a power that's at work within you to transform you into something new. The grace of God means that Jesus is at work in your life. The grace of God means that Jesus has a version of you that he wants to change you into. So if we put all that together, we experience the hope of Christ when we submit to the work of Christ. Because if Jesus is our hope, then we experience that hope when we focus on what he is doing. Not on what the world is doing with all of its endless circumstances and situations. We experience that hope when we align ourselves with his work, his purposes, and his desires. The grace of God is the invitation to find hope in the work of Christ because he is at work within you. Have you submitted your life to his work? Because your experience of hope is dependent upon whether or not you have. Because think about it this way. Imagine you got diagnosed this week with a terminal, rare form of cancer. Obviously, that would be devastating. And it would feel hopeless. But you found a doctor. And this doctor was the best doctor for this version and this type of cancer. And this doctor was willing to take you on, a doctor who had an incredible track record at bringing healing to people with your same exact condition. My goodness, you would feel hope. This doctor would be hope that he could bring healing to you. But imagine that once you found the doctor and you became his patient and he was willing to take you on, how silly would it be if you stopped there? As though that were all you needed to do. As though somebody would come along and say, hey, when's your procedure? When's the doctor going to start doing the treatment on you? Oh, I don't, I don't need to. I'm not doing any treatment. I just found the doctor. He's my hope. No. The hope that you had would be dependent upon submitting yourself to his work. The hope that you had in him would come alive when you submitted yourself to his work. Do you want to know the hope of Christ? Then are you submitting your life to the work of Christ? As you think about your last year, have you submitted your life to his desires and his purposes for you? Do verses 11 and 12 describe what Jesus is doing in your life? 
And the reason we don't experience the hope of Christ is because we're more committed to our version of life than Jesus' version of life, and so we don't submit to his work within us. Because the truth is, if we aren't actively submitting our lives to Jesus, then we're just going through life doing our own thing. We take the driver's seat in verses 11 and 12. We try to train ourselves. We decide when our passions need to be reined in. We decide when we need to have more self-control. We try to develop our own definition of godliness and what it looks like. We address our problems and determine the circumstances that need to change. We envision how life should look. And we envision a version of life that seems good to us. And this is the time of year when we do that on steroids. Because this is the new year, which means resolutions abound. New Year's resolutions, opportunities to change, and the hope of new life. Now, maybe you're not the resolution type. But at least you might admit that you have some things in mind that you'd like to do this new year, or things that you'd like to be different. I mean, nobody goes into the new year thinking, you know what, I'd really like this new year to be worse than last year. I'd really love to just torpedo the whole thing. No, of course not. We all long for better days. And now is the time we do it. Now is the time we think about the future and envision a version of life that seems good to us. And those resolutions just scratching the surface are typically what? Well, maybe it's saving more money. Maybe it's knocking out a big chunk of debt. Maybe it's working out, losing weight, dieting, to focus on your health. Maybe trying to get some area of your life under control, a little more organized and less chaotic. And those are all good things. Those are fine things. And we decide what those things are, and so we start the year off hopeful because we believe that if we can just get those situations fixed, And reorganized, we will live a richer, more meaningful, more fulfilling life. And it feels like a fresh start. But the thing is, what do all those things have in common? They all focus on circumstances. They all focus on circumstances and reveal how we are prone to look at the external realities of life. They all focus on circumstances and reveal how our sense of hope for the future is attached to those circumstances so quickly. And we hope that once everything is ordered the right way and looks the right way and feels the right way, life will just automatically feel so much better. And yet, we know that's not true. Because at the same time, statistically speaking, studies have shown that by two weeks into the year, just two weeks, the vast, vast, vast majority of resolutions have already ended and been abandoned on the side of the road like a dumpster fire, leaving nothing behind but the ashes of shame and sorrow. That's a little over the top, but you get the picture. (laughs) What point am I trying to make? I'm simply trying to point out how quickly we envision a life that doesn't include the work of the Lord Jesus. Instead, we so quickly envision one of our own making. 
And we focus on all the circumstances of life. Yet, of course, we don't feel genuine hope when we attach our hope to circumstances that we can't even change. Not to mention the fact that they don't address real problems. Because our circumstances are not our real problem. It's what our circumstances awaken within us that is our real problem. It's the things on the inside that really drive us and shape us and beset us. It's what our circumstances trigger within us that really pulls our strings. And those are the things that we do our best to ignore. Or we try to deal with on our own. Or we're not even aware of of what's really going on in our own hearts. Because working out every day, that is great. But it won't solve that self-contempt you feel when you look in the mirror. Saving money is fine, but it won't deal with that deep dissatisfaction and discontent with life that compels you to buy new things just so you feel a little spark. Dieting is great, but what you eat doesn't deal with the fact that you're being eaten alive by anxiety, worry, fear, or shame. And of course we won't feel that real hope because if we can't solve the real problems within us, then even when the circumstances do change, we will feel the same. And this passage invites you back into the work of Christ. Because the grace of God is an invitation to go all in on Jesus' version of you. To go all in on the vision of life he has for you. To go all in on what he wants to change and accomplish within you. He wants to move you towards self-control. He wants to subdue those wild passions and desires within you that you, don't, you couldn't tame any more than a velociraptor. Those are the things he wants to change within you. The grace of God invites you to entrust yourself to his work because he sees the real problems and he has the real power to change them. That's why he is our hope. That's why we submit ourselves to his work within us so that we might experience it. In this new year, you are invited back into the gracious work of Christ so that you might know hope, real hope, regardless of circumstance. So what can you do with all this? How can this change how you approach Jesus and know that uncircumstantial hope in this new year? Well, I have a simple challenge for you as you think about the future. It's to take seriously the fact that Jesus' priority is not changing your circumstances. It's changing you. So what does that mean? And how can you submit to his work? It's this. Stop praying about your circumstances. 
He already knows what they are. He knows what's difficult. He knows what's hard. He knows the desires in your heart better than you know the desires in your heart. You don't have to inform him of what your circumstances are. You don't have to let him know of your hope for new life. Stop praying about your circumstances. Stop asking for certain ones to change and certain ones to happen. Be willing to remove your focus from your circumstances and instead ask Jesus to change you in your circumstances. So if you're dissatisfied with life and the way things have turned out, start asking Jesus to give you new joy in him. If you feel stuck in a dead-end job, ask Jesus to change your heart and make you content and trust in him. Instead of spending the next year trying to earn the approval of others, ask Jesus to reveal his love for you and make it as real to you as the air that you breathe. That list goes on forever and we could change in so many different ways. But are you willing to entrust yourself to his work? So I invite you, instead of changing, asking Jesus to change your circumstances, let him go. Trust in his goodness this year and ask him to change you. Go all in on his version of you. One empowered with life-changing grace. Because the version of you that he has for you is a lot better than your version of you. Are you willing to trust that this year? And I imagine that if you did that over the next year, you'd arrive at the end of next year, at the end of 2022, and you'd be met with different circumstances. But I also imagine that you'd find a different kind of hope. Christian, don't you know who's coming for you? And don't you know who's at work within you? Let's pray.